This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for MakeASkillJack.com, and you can find more writing by me at HittingAJack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at SteveRosePhD.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about... Fun! (laughs) I did not expect that level of commitment to that, but I like it. Yeah, we're talking about fun today. What is fun? Steve, did you do any prep for this? I don't actually know. This is a me-led episode, so... Well, I just know that fun is what we're having right now. And so I did a little prep, watched a couple YouTube videos, you know, a lot of in-depth research... (laughs) Yeah, very. I actually looked up, tried to find like philosophy of fun videos and there weren't any. There was one that tried to, but it had nothing to do with philosophy, really. Well, what I'm going to rely on a lot of is my experience working in the fun industry, working in problem gambling. I walked the venue of perceived fun many a time. Yeah, I was going to say, is it really like a fun industry? It's more, it's the gambling is not fun to me. So that's actually probably a good place to start for actual definitions. Yeah. So how would you define fun? Honestly, it's really difficult. It's kind of nebulous what elements are required, what elements are not. And in fact, I have in total 11 types of fun. And I also went into different types of player profiles that gaming companies think of because I thought it'd be relevant to cover how we make games appealing to people because then we can have an idea of what is fun to different people. Mm. But to start, I guess, the Oxford definition, uh, this is the lamest, most uncreative definition, but let's just start with it, is lighthearted pleasure, enjoyment, amusement, boisterous joviality, or merrymaking, and entertainment, which honestly is just a bunch of synonyms. So maybe it's not even useful for saying. My Psych 101 prof, Professor Ennis, he was pretty legendary at University of Waterloo, he described fun as exciting and pleasurable. So it's those two combined factors. And I think it's still more complicated. I like how we put those two together because in contemplating fun myself, I realized it's not mere enjoyment because you could be experiencing enjoyment through relaxation, which is pleasurable, but it's not necessarily fun per se because there isn't that excitement factor. Yeah. I was trying to find ways to invalidate, like, as you should for any definition, you need to kind of stress test it for exceptions. And for that one, I was thinking like, okay, it's not just pure pleasure. Cause then it's like, is getting a massage fun? You literally took the exact example I was contemplating. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. Or like eating delicious food. Is that fun? It's enjoyable, but I wouldn't be like, I'm having fun. Like <laughs> you went to a massage earlier. I'm like, Oh, how'd the massage go? And you're like, Oh, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I start to wonder what type of massage. Yeah, then it starts thinking like sexual, right? Because like I remember thinking that like describing sex as fun was like it just seemed odd as a label because fun often is like supposed to be lighthearted or like childlike. Childlike, yeah. So I was like, is that fun? I mean, by this definition, anything sexual would be because it's exciting and pleasurable. But again, it goes it goes further than that, and that's actually why I think games can be misunderstood because games are enjoyable and fun, but they are in many different ways. And most people's engagement with games is that is just something that's just like lighthearted fun with no real thought or maybe a little bit of strategy, but that's about it. And these people don't dive deep enough into it, which is fine, but 
games have evolved to be a much grander thing than that for a lot of people. It's not necessarily invalidating games per se. It's invalidating the value of fun because fun has an evolutionary purpose. Like, why do we have it? Why do we experience laughter, for example? Like, what is this emotion for? Is it just a useless exertion of energy to, like, clench one's abdominal muscles and... And expel, ha, 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 ha. There's actually a philosophy or, like, an evolutionary psych. Again, these are sometimes fraught. But this one, one theory for why we have laughter is that, like, when we think there's danger and it doesn't exist, we can start laughing at how silly the situation was. And then that implies to other people that it's not actually dangerous. And so it's a signal socially to other people that the setting is not dangerous. Whereas if it was dangerous, we would scream or yell or make another sound that also signals that it is actually dangerous. Get out of here. Yeah. And I guess that's the value of fun in in play fighting, for example, like children roughhousing or like if you look at animals, you see like dogs like biting each other's ears and necks like gently and stuff. And, And there's this fun element to it that kind of tells both parties that this is not dangerous. Yeah, and I think it also has something to do with like flow. Chick said Mahaley's concept, that book we neither of us have still read but have heard about countless times about losing yourself in an act because it's just so engaging that you just have all time melt away. You're just so focused. Things like that would be described as a fun experience to some degree, even though like from observers, it would probably seem like you're deeply engrossed in work. Like you're working real hard. You're focused. Right. Yeah. So work can be fun, not according to some people, apparently. If it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I brought that up a number of times. It's fun to call it that. (laughs) As we described in the last episode. Yeah, or a few times, I think, actually. But I think off the top of my head before doing any research, I said that fun can be a safe form of transgression, wish fulfillment, power fantasy, low stakes, risk-taking, and narrative experiences. Those are kind of where I kind of fell down, but actually those, I think, often kind of neatly fall into the the eight types of fun one guy laid out. Nice. But what do you think about the safe form of transgression? I know you like to use games as like a kind of voyeuristic thing. Like you would hang out in like social games to watch people interacting and just mess with them. Yeah, there's different types of fun and there's different flavors of it. We can talk about all the different types, but this particular safe transgression form of fun is something that I can resonate with. And playing games like Grand Theft Auto, like I'll never go through the different missions and bring the thing to there to get the thing and you know I, I don't really care what I want to do is drive around and mess things up <laughs> just do something very transgressive in a very safe environment and also when we used to play that PlayStation game oh PlayStation home yeah it's kind of like Second Life where you just have like an avatar and you have a bunch of little mini games that are kind of pointless but it's mostly like a social platform yeah so I would create different characters and walk around and like shock people or something you know yeah and they react to your avatar as though it's actually you so like we had different male and female forms and one we did it's a very attractive body but then like a very ugly face the ugliest face we could make and the way people react was hilarious as if that's actually you which i mean I guess most people probably make something similar to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people come running up to you from behind being like, oh, this person looks attractive. And then you would turn around and they'd be like horrified. <laughs> like, oh, my they actually God. would they'd react <laughs> negatively and run away. I think another element that comes up is that frustration versus fun. Because like if you look at people playing games, even the game they love, it's often the fact of watching them. They don't seem like they're having fun. They seem like they might be frustrated or angry or like they might just chuck the controller. But then after the fact, you're like, or like you seem like you're having a bit of 
of a difficult time there. And they say, no, no, no it was a great time. <laughs> it was good fun. <laughs> well, but what if they never get to experience like leveling up or winning the level? Like what if they just stay in that frustration the whole time and they throw the remote and they walk away? Would they say that was fun? No, definitely not. I think it's, it's gotta be balanced because if there's no frustration at all, then you're always winning and that's not fun at all. Like every time you pull a lever, you win like large, then who, who cares at that point? Or if you always win against your opponents, then it's boring. You want more competition, right? And the frustration I think is often like the, the better form of it is seeing somebody do something that was unexpected with the rules that you're like, ah, oh, that was clever, but it still screws me. Or that the mechanics of the game, like what you can do at that time end up being frustrating because you're like, ah, oh, I'm just like $1 away from being able to do this amazing combo kind of thing. Like those kind of frustrations, when you actually end up successfully doing those things or overcoming those obstacles, that's where the enjoyment can come from, right? It's problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's being able to overcome the frustration and, and kind of have that relief like, oh, I did it. I got it. But you can't have one without the other. You can't be all striving and frustration or all winning. This reminds me so much of dopamine responses. Like this is all dopamine system when it comes down to it. Yeah, pretty much. To elaborate, not to just throw that out vaguely, dopamine is associated with learning through reinforcement of behaviors and not necessarily memory recall element of learning, but that reward-based behavioral learning. And it's beyond just simple reward, it's about novelty and surprise and competence and leveling up. And so if you nearly get something, but you don't quite get it, you get a dopamine hit saying, try again, you almost got it. It's almost like a near miss on a slot machine where you have like two sevens and you just need the third seven and it's almost there and you're like, oh, I almost got it. Like that'll trigger the dopamine, like try again, you're getting closer. And that's an adaptive response in nature because in order to survive, we need to have some kind of motivation to get better at things. And so as we develop a sense of progression and leveling up, let's say finding a food source and then our brain rewards us, keep going, find more. You have more survival. And so it's all related to the motivational systems and evolution to keep us trying to find more resources, to develop more competence and skill. And these games really exploit that. Gambling games, yeah. I get what you're saying. They're, they're things that teach us how to better navigate the world and reach our goals. That's pretty much what games are in, in an enjoyable way. Usually like a boiled down version, like we talked about in the last episode with Mac, about it's a boiled down version of progression in real life. And that's why games can be so compelling. It's kind of like fables or stories. They're, they're lessons for the real world that we can use to enhance our lives. And I guess it obviously becomes a problem when they're talking to you. But that's kind of like how refined sugar is just like really, really or like cocaine, I guess, is like really, really concentrated forms of this thing that we would normally like in smaller doses, but it's brought to such a concentration level that it's problematic. And that's what these more addictive games are doing. They're taking the elements that are rewarding from games and they're making them so whittled down that it's just hitting those rewarding parts of your brain again and again and again so that some people can't walk away. Right, yeah. I'm pulling up an article I wrote actually. It's called Why Video Games Are Addictive. And it reminds me of that. It's funny though, because like again, you're coming from a kind of like an old man yells at cloud kind of perspective on games, maybe because you don't play games them very bad. much. <laughs> oh, I know that's I know that's not the take you're having, but just I'm wondering what you're saying in there. Well, what I'm saying in there, I think it bases this around self determination theory, and we talked about this in an earlier episode. It's the theory of intrinsic motivation, meaning why we do what we do for internal reasons rather than external ones like getting paid and whatnot here's a question do you think that fun has to be voluntary because that's one of the things i listed and i'm like i think it does like you have to consent even if you feel compelled to do it because your friends are like come on once you get into it if you actually start having fun you are basically kind of coming around to consenting but it's sticky i guess at some points i think 
I would say yes. Consent is probably required <laughs> to, be, to actually have fun. Yeah, yeah. You can't force someone to have fun. Let's talk about like a theme park to take it out of kind of slippery territories. Like if somebody coerces you to go on a roller coaster and you're sitting in there, you're strapped down, you're like, oh, I wish I didn't do this. Like I feel like I was really coerced there. But then you actually start to enjoy it. That's kind of you submitting to, oh, this is actually like I would do this again. So you're kind of... You're like, I'm, I'm here. I might as well enjoy it, I guess, is that take. But it's still... If you don't go into that, you're just sitting there terrified the whole time and you're not consenting to it, even though you did it. Or just getting angrier and angrier because you're like, why did I have to be doing this? <laughs> Before, okay, then this is the last thing I had to say before moving into the actual types of games, the taxonomies here. There's two things, actually. There's one, I got a lot of this from the podcast Ludology, which is the study of games. It's very interesting takes on like how different kinds of games are made and what could be fun and what's not. They talked about something called the Fiero moments or Fiero as like a concept, which is the feeling of overcoming adversity. And it's usually expressed in somebody shouting yes and then throwing their hands up, which is very prevalent in like party games or really competitive games. But it's just that moment of exhalation exaltation yeah maybe that or acceleration before we go into the different categories you mind if i elaborate on uh, on self-determination theory i think it's a very powerful theory and it's one of my favorites in psychology because it has a lot of explanatory power in in a very small amount of words it basically says things are motivating intrinsically for three reasons sense of autonomy or like freedom competence or leveling up or relatedness like a sense of connection and those three ingredients can explain a lot of why we want to do something a lot of motivation but i think it has explanatory power for fun as well and i said games offer a sense of freedom that maybe you don't experience in everyday life a sense of purpose or leveling up progression synonyms i guess and the third part connection the games can be highly social so i think this theory can explain a lot about video game addiction i think at a a high level yeah i mean from a designer level where you have to actually figure it out you have to come up with probably be more useful to use some of the things i'm going to talk about but yeah there's a lot of overlap between them that's for sure right and when i say addiction i don't mean any form of video game enjoyment is an addiction i'm just coming from an addiction framework i guess yeah because i think autonomy and competence are both required in a lot of these things because like if you're not making your own choices then it's as in ludology they said talked about how games have to be meaningful as in your actions have meaning like you're actually moving towards something you can determine your own direction competence of course like if you're playing one of those really whenever i talk to people about board games they say they're excited about board games i always have to ask them like name like one or two games you really like or like your favorite ones and if it's just a standard array then it's like okay that's a different level of gamer it's fine to enjoy those but i don't really enjoy them being the old classics like monopoly or sorry or anything that is just like you don't really control very much you just roll dice the dice tell you where to go then something happens like snakes and ladders the worst game ever <laughs> like roll a dice okay you move forward oh now you're back all basically nothing to do with you at all you might as well not even be playing oh it's like the game trouble you know you have a little yeah, dice popper same thing, in the middle yeah. or oh, sorry yeah so bad yeah Okay, so I want to talk about Matt LeBlanc's eight types of fun. Somebody added a plus one on there as well. And we can just go through them. I can give you examples, but like he worked on System Shock and Thief. For anybody that knows, those are huge games back when they were released, especially Thief. And a few other ones that were notable, but I didn't know widely. So he's decided that it's not useful to talk about fun as like designing games or why a game works as just fun or amusing or pleasurable because it needs to be more fine-tipped than that. And so he did like Howard Gardner with the intelligence types, which is actually a criticism of him. He just kind of threw out the 
these eight different types just to put it out there. And I think he might be doing Cunningham's law. Cunningham's law is the best way to get the right answer on the internet is not to ask a question. It's to pose the wrong answer. So just posing a framework invites people to come and criticize it and to build off of it as opposed to having nothing then they might not do anything so his types are sensation game as sense pleasure so games that evoke emotion in the player be it through sound visuals controller rumble or physical effort so examples would be like candy crush saga apparently or dance dance revolution which i think you seem to enjoy these games sometimes yeah no i like that there's a sense of skill that's involved there where you gain a sense of competence through getting better at these types of games so yeah yeah, like physically moving your body. And then the next one is fantasy. So game as make-believe. So these games allow the player to take place in another world. Some may call it escapism. And examples would be like Final Fantasy or Legend of Zelda. This, I would imagine, doesn't appeal to you. I used to play Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. Whoa. The gold cartridge in the N64. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I found it very like mysterious, haunting. There was like a feel to it, an emotion you got from it. Oh, that particular game, yeah. They had to rush that game's development because they basically had just released a Zelda game before for Nintendo 64 and then they were tasked with coming up with a new game entirely I believe I might be misremembering this to some degree but they used all the same resources so all the same characters and buildings and stuff like that and just use those to build another game entirely and then just change the story and the mechanics of it so it actually became this very original thing but it didn't take that long in development time because all the graphical resources and gameplay mechanics were all present already I should say before we continue that the whole point of this is for you listener to figure out which of these things do you find most appealing because then if you identify what's appealing to you you can bake these into your daily life a little bit easier to make things that normally are a little bit unenjoyable you can maybe reframe them into something that is more rewarding potentially more fun yeah (laughs) yeah there we go back to the theme the next one is narrative so game as drama it's a means of telling a story or a narrative to the player and often it can be interactive so like dungeons and dragons actually has already kind of done all three of these because some people really like having different kinds of dice they would roll like metal dice for instance you gave me those thank you the fantasy element of course taking another perspective narrative you're building a story for you and your group of players examples of this would be like the walking dead it's a telltale games game where you it's kind of choose your own adventure with graphics i think that's probably going to be enticing to most people to some level some people really actually don't like playing games with narrative or the narrative is kind of secondary and i think i get that personally because a lot of games their story is so derivative or just kind of old hat that you're like yeah yeah yeah, let's just get on with the game the next one i think is probably not you but me to some degree is challenge game as obstacle course games that provide players with highly competitive value or with increasingly difficult challenges so like we were talking about elden ring or dark souls the last time tetris is a good example yeah yeah you got the link i sent you there's a link where all these things are listed by the way it's mark leblanc's page or i think he has design theory it's mda framework both of those have examples of all these listed and i'll listen in the show notes of course the next one is fellowship so games as a social framework a lot of these overlap with the other theorists but fellowship is just you're having a time with your friends it's just a way for you to interact with friends and do something social like mario kart I love Mario Kart and I like it for the social reason, but I also like it for the challenge reason because I actually got really good at it. Like, you know how you like drift and you get the different color of smoke coming out? Like I was able to really master a lot of that. And so there was like a real challenge component for me that was fun. But the fellowship piece is fun too. I'm not sure if you were there for that, but we were talking about how negative feedback loops in games are when winning begets losing. And so Mario Kart is an example of that where if you're in first place, the blue turtle shell can come out at any time and anybody in last place has a higher chance of getting that turtle shell and you get worse drops like worse items when you're in first i think that's a good thing because it levels the playing field a little bit 
So it keeps people in the fun range rather than like one person just dominating. It makes it harder for the person in the front. It makes it easier for the person in the back and it makes it more fun that way. Yeah, these are deliberate design choices to make it so it's more even. Whereas if you're playing a single player game, it doesn't matter. Like, because then it doesn't matter if the computer is having fun. It matters if the player is having fun. But if there's multiple players, then you have to kind of balance it a bit more. So that's also like, it's like, like being an action hero. Like they shoot out and hit each enemy once and they die and he somehow or she doesn't get hit at all <laughs> or maybe they do get hit a couple times but they're still going like it's imbalanced of course because otherwise it wouldn't be very fun they actually had to design i believe a higher ratio of enemies missing you or shooting badly because if they actually were to try to make it very competitive it's extremely frustrating because they're going to probably beat you a lot of the time right right so that's one two three four that's the fifth the next one they're not numbered in order it's just some going through them just to let you know we're at six discovery game as uncharted territory so you get to explore worlds or unlock new things or find places you would otherwise not find it's it's meant to be the discovery is the game itself it's the intent it's like wonder yeah it's like a good book or something especially in sci-fi or fantasy where something is revealed that you wouldn't have otherwise known like a magic system where somebody discovers a new realm of magic that nobody knew about and it's kind of interesting to see it unfold in front of you i can see how this hits with the dopamine response of novelty and kind of discovery yeah yeah sure expression is the next one so it's a self-discovery as art form for the player to exhibit their own personality into the world so minecraft is a great example of that because you can build whatever you want people i just saw recently they did a to scale model of new york city and it's like holy shit that would take forever yeah like there are some really impressive feats that groups of people have worked on for literal real-time months if not years building these things it's like whoa scale new york city so you could walk around this minecraft new york city yep Whoa. And every little shop and everything is in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, as much as they could, because things obviously change, but I don't know. Like, I don't know how they did apartments and stuff. Like, how do you do the insides? I don't know, but it's intense. The next one is submission. So just like this one I relate with. When I was talking in the last episode about games, the ones that I find rewarding are like the random ones that you kind of like have some skill, but you know it so well, you don't need to think very much. You don't need to read very much or listen to anything. You're just kind of interacting with it like old school mario you see something happening your brain doesn't have to think too much you just kind of do and the reason i like these is because it frees up your mind to do something else so like your hands are engaged you're doing something and i'm listening to a book or an educational conversation or something like that because it's just something that you're kind of doing to relax it's like knitting i guess in a way thinking about it it's repetitive but still somewhat challenging or engaging and it allows you to think about your day or whatever you want to think about or just escape, I guess. Nice. Yeah. The zone of, I see Farmville as, as an example there. I haven't played that, but I, I'm going to assume that you can just kind of grind through the motions and just listen to an audiobook, I guess. I have no idea. I know that it was extremely popular. So, but yeah, grinding is a huge part of this, which is just doing a repetitive action over and over again. It's basically like a chore, but I guess. For some people, it could be meditative. A fun chore. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the eight ones from LeBlanc. And then one person added another one called Destruction. It's proposed by somebody else. But for me, it's game as transgression a lot of the time. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, because the point is to destroy stuff. The point is to do what you cannot do in real life. It's kind of a power fantasy. And most of us, I think... Like I was playing D and D, and like because of the game, it's very loose. Depending on who's running the game, you can play it in many different ways. And it was during the pandemic when shit was going wrong for me, and I was not feeling powerful in real life at all, and my life was out of control. And we were playing a game. 
game that was like a horror game. And I realized at that time that like, for me, I do like horror and at the right time, I probably would. But at that time, I wanted just a power fantasy. I wanted to just feel very competent in a world where I can do whatever I want. Because in that way, I guess it is escapism, but it was also like the social element. But for the destruction one, it's games that are built, they might have a building component in it, but the emphasis is always on tearing things down and destroying the structures. It's very satisfying, obviously, because we can't really do that. And a game of that example would be Rampage, which was where you played one of those giant monsters from like a Japanese film and you're just destroying the city and eating people. It's it's ridiculous. The whole point is to destroy the city as fast as possible without the military killing you. Okay. I, I think of Grand Theft Auto, but that's the way I engage with Grand Theft Auto. I don't think it's meant to necessarily no, be No, no, no. It definitely is. That's that's a huge draw of the game. So you're right. The thing is, each game is going to appeal to many different types of audiences. The bigger the game, the more you've heard of it, the more likely it appeals in various ways to various different people. All of these types of fun, depending on how you play it, like you can actually do the narrative of Grand Theft Auto. Or the social. Or the fantasy or discovery is a piece of that expression to some degree on the online space fellowship oh yeah so it appeals to all these types of fun yeah interesting so then another type that came up when i was talking to an outdoorsy type person they were talking about fun types one and two and honestly i'm never a fan when we do a taxonomy of like types one and two or like the next one we're going to talk about psychographic profiles basically just profiles of what players are like one of them is timmy johnny and spike it's like oh great we're just going to give us generic names that's totally memorable but let's stick with type ones and two first type one fun is what we all seek out when we're seeking fun it's a good time in the moments we're enjoying ourselves and it's just fun whereas Type 2, on the other hand, is not fun in the moment at all. Often it's quite arduous. It's a challenge. It's a struggle. And those ones are seen as fun after the fact. Okay. Do you want an example of that? Yeah. Okay, so an example of type two is like you're doing a difficult hike straight up a mountain, dangling on high ropes where you're afraid of heights or being eaten alive by mosquitoes in your tent. There aren't really necessarily fun activities. They're probably fairly uncomfortable, but they're part of what makes an adventure. So the lessons and stories that come out of type two fun are what make it worthwhile. So to me, I mean, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, a couple of explanations. All I keep thinking is type two diabetes. <laughs> type two very type very two insightful fun, of you. Type two fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's type one and type two in personalities too for or systems i think for uh what's his name thinking fast and slow yeah dan o'connorman yeah so for me type two it makes sense because it's about understanding the world and your own competency in the world and how you're able to endure like the actual goal of the quote-unquote game is to be able to survive this arduous task it's kind of like hazings and stuff it, it was worthwhile because you were able to make it through it and not everyone's going to said nobody ever what are you talking about <laughs> hazings no people who have been through hazings fight tooth and nail to have the hazings continue the problem with hazings is when they get out of control right i was gonna say every time i hear of hazings it's like in a negative bullying context that's from the left i mean it seems like it's a more right thing like with frats and stuff but it's to have endured a hazing you're much more likely to highly value the organization you're much more likely to be socially cohesive you're much more likely to sacrifice for the benefit of the group it's a really useful tool in the right circumstances, but it obviously can be abused as well. Right. It can make cults, but I guess the only time I hear of a hazing, given that I'm not in a dorm or college or anything, or anything else like that, is in the news when it did go too far. So I guess our view of hazing is skewed by the only time we really hear of them is when it's quite overboard. Yeah, the vast majority. Just like video games being like bad for violence or whatever, it's not true. That's actually propaganda against it to a good degree and often from people who don't understand it. So again, back to old man yells at cloud. But also I think for type 2 fun, it seems to me is to be something to do with the remembering self and the experiencing self. So this is a theory in psych that's been, I think, fairly validated where 
if you're going through something in the moment, it's unenjoyable. You can remember it as being more enjoyable looking back or vice versa. It goes Yeah. Like, or being stoned, even like being stoned, you have worse encoding of memories. So it can heighten your experience in the moment for the experiencing self, but the remembered self might not remember nearly as much because it didn't encode into long-term memory. It just stayed in short term and then gone. So for me, like a famous experiment for this was like, if you have your hands in cold water and it's really, really painfully cold, you have to hold it for 30 seconds. And then you pull your hand out. One group pulled their hand directly out. The other group had to plunge their hands into a cold water that was still uncomfortably cold, but less cold than the water they were just in. 10 extra seconds. So the first group did 30 seconds. The second group did 40 seconds. Which one do you think enjoyed their experience more? The one that did the less cold second. Yeah. You had more suffering objectively, but it was more enjoyable to the remembered self. Interesting. Yeah. And so this reminds me of going on long, arduous hikes through the Rocky Mountains where it was just completely uncomfortable and quite terrifying, actually. Like you you never really know if there's going to be a bear or even a cougar. Like literally they're a real threat. But when you look back after coming back from that, you just remember it as this really great trek. Whereas at any given moment, it wasn't as great as it was remembered, I guess. It's always hard to pitch these things to people because I'm like, no, it's going to be really tough and it's going to be like more of a camaraderie and like enjoying the time together. But the actual experience isn't great. And be like, ah, nah, pass. Because like they're not wanting to be uncomfortable at all. But after the fact, they're usually some of the most memorable experiences you have, the most cherished experiences you've had. This reminds me of what I don't find fun. You often try to get me to go blueberry picking. Oh my God. I bring that up to mock you behind <laughs> your back. <laughs> All the time. Hey, let's get let's get let's hang out and let's okay. maybe context. Maybe it's the pick. middle of the pandemic where he will not go inside at all, and it's kind of like it's something to do outside. It's a twenty minute drive from my place, and the berries are the best, and they cost like. I think it was like 15 bucks for like a full bucket of them, which is like a kilogram of blueberries. That's crazy cheap. Why wouldn't you want? Fine, whatever. It's not arduous though. It's not even like challenging. This is dumb. I'm not, I don't accept your You asked me in high school too and I laughed. I was like, blueberry picking, really? (laughs) This actually seems like the opposite though. Why would I want to go pay to do manual labor in the hot sun? Oh my God, audience, does he not sound like the, the most soft-handed ivory tower liberal academic by saying something like that, categorizing blueberry picking as manual labor? Jesus. I, I, but like our goal was to hang out, not go do like farm work. Yeah, hanging out. Your time is supposed to be spent hanging out with the person. We're really getting off task here, but you're, it doesn't matter what you're doing. But we're talking about, we're talking about, well, I don't think that's fun, but you perceive it to be fun. Okay, yeah. So it's instead, Steve wanted the fun of sitting around doing the exact same thing we'd be doing, but okay, we were sitting around talking instead of moving our hands and picking berries talking. We're just doing the same thing, basically. It's just as much work, except for you end up with a bunch of cheap, delicious berries. I still don't accept this from you. But moving on. Okay, so moving off of that, because honestly, I feel like you're going to come out. I may come out as a dick, but you're going to come out as like lame. (laughs) Actually, we're both lame in different ways, I guess. Because I'm like, hey. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Like if. Are you kidding me? You just said you were. Like for me and you to do maybe. Like I would go with the family, you know. I would do it for little Aubrey. You know, we'd go blueberry picking. Yeah, I think it would be a nice. You're making it seem like it's just like a thing for children to do. Like it would be a nice time with the family. But me and you, I don't, don't I'm not into it. uh, Whatever. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, so Magic the Gathering, it's one of the largest card games in the world, and it's competitive play. I have a lot of friends that are really into it. They broke down the types of people that they're making their games for and the way they, they design cards for each of these different people in mind. And so they broke them down to Timmy, Tammy, that's the male or female form, Johnny or Jenny, Spike, Melvin and Melanie, and Vorthos. 
<laughs> Vorthos does not fit at all, but these are not all named by the same person. They were actually kind of constructed collaboratively through like PR and just the audience. Vorthos? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Timmy and Tammy, just listeners, just try to figure out which one is mostly you because there's going to be one that's going to be the strongest or there are two that might be a combination. So the first one is Timmy cares most about the quality of his wins, not the quantity. They like big wins, not last minute victories. They like to just utterly destroy their opponents impressively with big actions. They like spectacle. This is equivalent to like thrill gamblers who like high stakes types of games where you win less frequently, but when you do win, it's massive. And so the lottery is an example of this. Mm, that makes sense. The next one is, I mean, actually, I'm curious if each of these has components in gambling. But yeah, let's discover. The next one is Johnny or Jenny. Jenny wants to win with style, self-expression, and winning on their own terms. They enjoy creativity, winning in ways that most people wouldn't even consider. And they're happiest when they're exploring uncharted territories. In essence, they want creative control. Yeah, okay. That's a little harder, I think, for gambling because they're not giving you too much creativity room in there. This reminds me of like people who like dice games. Why? What's the creativity? The way you throw the dice? Yeah, no, there is is a real flair like people will perfect the way they throw the dice and like the way it hits off the backboard and there's a certain technique to it okay then sure i'm curious how much has gone into actually studying that that'd be interesting but i imagine since it's not as well known as card counting it's Probably not as effective, nearly. Next up is Spike. Again, for some reason, Spike doesn't have a female form. They're the tournament player. They're the ones that just want to win. It's about quantity over quality. They want more. They just want to win. If For them, if they win 9 out of 10 games and they feel they should have won the 10th game, they're going to leave a tournament unhappy. Whereas the first ones, if Johnny or Jenny got off their one creative, really powerful thing, and they won one game out of 10, they can leave happy. Whereas Timmy and Tammy, if they win three out of 10, but they won like massively destroying their opponent, they would be happy. But Spike, they're the sore loser, sore winner kind of type to me, it sounds like. I was just going to say, it just sounds like a sore loser. Yeah, like they have to win at all costs, which to be fair, that is evolutionarily advantageous. We can say that much. I guess, yeah. The next one is Melvin or Melanie. They focus on the appreciation of the game, the intricacies of how it works, and they focus on the why. Like what made the designer choose this mechanic what we didn't do this or that they're probably not going to be big on gambling no they're very curious types yeah yeah they're like the person that's taking apart a watch to figure out how it ticks Mm -hmm. and the final one is vorthos So Vorthos is all about story and flavor and role-playing in a particular character or archetype that they've constructed for themselves. So if they were playing this game, Magic the Gathering, they would pick a particular kind of person that they wanted to play and have the cards all themed around that. And that's how they would try to express themselves to be this person. Like, I'm going to be a necromancer who controls the undead and blah, blah, blah. That's kind of more what they're about. This reminds me of RPGs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think if we're going to break those down, because this is specifically for a card game, but I think it's still useful when applying these to other areas kind of like the whole idea of the podcast we're looking at concepts that can be used across domains because it's still useful i find a lot of times and then there's a final one the final taxonomy i have is bartle's taxonomy of players there's four of them this is probably the most reduced down and easiest one to remember did you just compile like a grab bag of taxonomies and types yeah because i thought that would be interesting to talk about like what different people find to be fun and how gaming communities and game designers create these things to appeal to people so you sure got a lot of them what's this next one this one's bartle i forget his first name richard bartle he has four types there's the achiever the explorers the socializers and the killers so you are a socializer we'll start with there socializers choose to play a game for the social aspects rather than the actual game itself the game is merely a tool for them to get to meet others inside or outside of the game Maybe not outside, but for you, it's just like <laughs> playing with, around with people. So games built around this are going to have to focus a lot on like the NPCs, the non-player characters, the random people in the world. They have to have a good relationship 
to the main character for the solo game to actually be at all engaging for them. Whereas multiplayer, the online environment is itself the purpose of playing because they want to find other people to band together with or to, to mess around with. I think there's a lot of overlap between these various taxonomies. There are, because like the socializer obviously is, maybe not obviously, it doesn't seem to overlap with the Magic the Gathering side, but with the types of fun, I guess it would fall under like fellowship, primarily fellowship and maybe discovery and expression. Then if we look at achievers, achievers are wanting to play games because they want as many points or levels or equipment or other concrete measurements of success in the game. This is the challenge type of fun. Yeah, they like to get 100% on games. They like to brag about their achievements. They like to compete with other achievers or may actually find them quite annoying. And according to this, they actually look to socializers to give them praise. So when they've got 100% on a very difficult game, a socializer like, whoa, you did that? That's crazy because the socializer is never going to want to do that. This reminds me of the difference between narcissists and codependents. Oh, yeah. Go on. (laughs) Like narcissists are very much this this kind of win at all costs. They want the praise and validation. They're the spike. Yeah, the spike, the challenge focus fun. Whereas the socializers tend to be more kind of compassionate, empathetic, connection-oriented people who would be... Maybe be drawn towards these high achievers? Well, yeah. More of a tendency toward codependence. And I guess they would get validation by giving validation and stroking the ego of the narcissist. And then the narcissist says, I like you. I'm going to keep you close. And then by association, they get kind of this identity of being close to something powerful or prestigious. Though it makes me wonder, though, like, because narcissists they don't like to lose so they don't seem like they would seek out challenges to me they would seek out things that would be naturally within their wheelhouse that would be challenging to most people but not to them perhaps yes if it's a challenge that they're not the best at then yeah it's all or nothing yeah i can see them just being like this sucks this is a terrible game (laughs) no they got to be the best yeah the final two are explorers explorers again this is this is very much overlapping with the other ones it's they're wanting to discover areas they want to immerse themselves in the game they want to know the game's lore like the mythos of the game like what is the background like just what Whatever world they're in, they want to know the details, like the nitty gritty of like how this all functions, how this all works. It kind of seems to overlap somewhat with the the Melvin or Melanie, but more on the level of plot and explanations of the world. Like how does this world tick, not how does the game function? If that makes sense, right? Yeah, I find that semi appealing as well. Yeah, I think actually the narcissist would probably be more likely to be the killers. They thrive on competition with other players, and they prefer fighting them to scripted, computer-controlled opponents. They want to play a real challenge, so maybe that's actually undercutting my own point, so <laughs> maybe not. But they're motivated by power gaming, which is like finding the best equipment, optimizing to the highest level. doesn't matter if it looks good, so long as it performs. doesn't matter if they chose it, so long as it performs. That's the whole thing. They want to destroy other players. And for them, nothing is more enjoyable than pitting themselves against another player and just obliterating them. So I guess that's like Timmy Tammy. All right. Any more archetypes? No, that's it. We went through a lot of different types of fun and a lot of different types of people who enjoy different types of fun. Hopefully it wasn't too dry because honestly, I was like, oh shit, this is one of those ones like design thinking back like episode eight, I think it was where... Oh, I hate that episode. Yeah, you felt like, oh no, just like Phil's talking too much. I I, I don't have anything to say. Wah. That was not a fun episode for me. No, for you, it wasn't. This is back when Steve's metric of a good episode was Steve had fun. (laughs) And I'm like, we want to make the audience have fun. Not, I mean, hopefully the audience has fun when we have fun. Hopefully it's all rewarding all around. I believe that's very true. If I'm having fun, then it's higher likelihood everyone else's. Yeah. You do like to think that, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) 
anyway, I think you can figure out what kinds of fun there are. And by breaking these things down, you can hopefully gamify your life. And to specify what gamification is, it's applying game elements to non-games to make them more rewarding. So you want to get more into working out, you can maybe build a narrative around it. Like reframing, we were talking about imposter syndrome, reframing it as con syndrome, where you're actually, I'm sneaking in here. I don't I don't belong here. But I fooled these idiots. Like they think I'm actually competent. Ha! Pulled the wool over their eyes. It's an enabling belief. Oh, I love that technique to overcome imposter syndrome. It's, yeah, instead of believing you're an imposter and you don't belong and you're, you're kind of bad for it, more like I'm pulling the wool over their eyes. I don't belong. Yeah, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting away with it. Yeah, I have the certifications and qualifications for this, but they don't know that I don't think I can do it. Yeah, I like to use that frame for counseling. <laughs> it's like, oh, I really don't belong doing counseling, but I'm kind of pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. You know, when you start to feel like an imposter, just go into master manipulator frame. It works every time. <laughs> Obviously, keep it within reason. Don't be like, yes, I'm going to like steal all this money. That's, I think, the, the main danger. But yeah, I mean, if you're actually not qualified to do something, yeah, don't do it. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't go into that. Don't. If you just feel like an imposter and you know that like on paper you should be able to do this, then... Realistically you... speaking, yeah. if we look at the reality and be like, okay, realistically on paper, you're good to go, but you feel like an imposter emotionally, even though thinking otherwise, then switching that feeling by changing it to a master manipulator framework, I think it's an effective strategy. But yes, gamifying life is a way to increase motivation to do the things that you want to do. Like gamifying working out as not just a challenge, but to a narrative of like you can like imagine yourself to be some kind of character in a video game training. Do you remember that app we had a long time ago where they gamified fitness where they gave you points? Yes. Fitocracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it was annoying because it was very much pushing you towards certain things, but I think it's still useful because you could track how much you lifted. It would give you a certain number of points for how much you lifted how many times. It really much rewarded heavy lifting and a lot of reps, but if you just ignore that, it's just still a little bit fun because you're like slowly leveling up and you're like, yeah, there's a story. Like it went from like nothing and now I'm like this thing. Oh, I love fitocracy. That's the game that like motivated me to learn how to do muscle ups <laughs> good see it works people it works it's a, it's a crazy workout where you do a pull up and then go over the bar you go all the way over the bar and then go all the way back under the bar so it's like a pull up but you're like going all the you way did, on yeah, top do of the it bar so fast that you get the momentum to be able to go over it i thought you did a dip on top a tricep no, dip. no you don't oh. you don't know but that workout was worth so many points on photography <laughs> i would just do like a ton of those <laughs> i just like dominate yeah i remember you're cheating Anyway, that's all we have for today. Try to gamify your life, figure out what makes you tick and exploit it to get ahead in life. Not to be the cult of productivity, more just find things that you find enjoyable and actually will get you ahead in life. There we go. Yes. Enjoy. All right. Thanks for showing up and hope to see you next time. Leave us a review, comment, all that stuff and promote us to your friends. That would really help us out. In the meantime, have fun. Oh, he got it. Bye. <laughs> Bye.